All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer and I loved the Sandman show. No, I'm kidding. I thought it was fine. I'm sure you all called that from the beginning. You're like, oh, Missy's going to think this is fine. And you were right. I thought it was fine. I'm Mary Marketer, and um, I think they made a great adaptation for uh, anyone casual person who wants to watch Sandman. For the filthy casuals. For the filthy cash. No, no, seriously, though, no shade, because, like, as we were discussing before recording, this is a dense fucking comic. It is. It is rich. It is dense. It is not for everybody. And if watching the show is your preferred way of engaging with it, go for it. More power to you. It is not easy. It is way more easy to consume. The changes made are weird in some of the cases, but those changes match the show. Yeah. I think this show really does feel like an entity of its own. It's just an entity I care about a whole lot less. I think it also did the thing that Good Omens did and it made purposeful choices. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which it's it's frustrating when I can see those choices. Yeah, unless it's unless it's the casting of Arthur Dar- Dar- Darville Darville Darville. Yeah. That was a purposeful. That was good. That was perfect. 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 Isn't it funny that Constantine <laughs> slash Constantine is allowed to be bisexual when played by a woman, David S. Goyer? Isn't that funny? Anyway. Sandman. So interesting. I would love to like get all the background story on the choices made. <sighs> the Sandman is a comic series written by Neil Gaiman about for Vertigo the beach. Comics. About the beach. Uh, it is penciled, inked, colored, and lettered by a number of people over the years. Like <laughs> so many people. Well, it's huge. So It is huge, but unlike a lot of comics of this era and graphic novels, which we'll get more into in a bit, um, it was not a single creative team that worked on it. Neil Gaiman was the through line. There, uh, Dave McKeon did the covers for the whole series, but oh, like there was a lot of changes in the artistic roster, which makes sense, actually, for this comic. There's different tones to the stories, all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, the series follows Morpheus, the Dream King, Oneros, Dream... Etc. Prince of Stories. Shitty baby. Shitty baby. Um, He has a lot of names. Uh, He is part of a family of, they're called the Endless. They're not gods. They're like something beyond gods um, who have power over certain aspects of sapient life. Um, As of where we are in the story now in the show, we have met or know the existence of some of the Endless. We know Dream, obviously. We know Death. Realize they're all D's. Yeah, they are. Uh, We know dream and death. Uh, We know desire. We know despair. And we have heard mentions of delirium and destiny. I'm really excited for delirium. Me too. I love delirium. I don't know how they're going to do some of it. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, There are several more. Actually, there's one. There's one big one who isn't included in that roster. (laughs) Um, And there's a reason for that. It is not part of this part of the story. You will find out later. Um... The first arc follows Morpheus after he is imprisoned by a magician aiming to trap death and therefore make himself immortal. Um, Morpheus's belongings, which give him power, have been scattered, and he tracks each of them down to restore his full strength. 
Following that, he meets up with Death, who chides him for being a mournful loser, and he realizes that she's right. <laughs> mournful loser. Death is so good. Death is so Another good. character I would watch an entire show on. She actually does have her own miniseries. Good. My favorite one, and of course it is, is there's one of the comics just is about it because this was taking place in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, I, I swear to God, I did not make this up. It is a comic sh- with John Constantine and Death showing you how to apply a condom to a banana. <laughs> it is the greatest work of literature ever created. I'll find it for you later. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in the second arc, Morpheus tracks down some of his creations slash henchmen. I've added a question mark there. Most notably Fiddler's Green and the Corinthian. Uh, Two opposites that are truly one. They're both great. Yes. Uh, Rose Walker, the descendant of one of the people impacted by Morpheus's kidnapping in the first arc, finds herself embroiled with both of those characters, Fiddler's Green and the Corinthian. And also... I can't remember her name in the show, but it's like Glob in the comic, the nightmare that imprisons Jed. It's a weird name. Yeah. Anyway. God, what is it? It's like Brute and Glob in the in the comic. I can't remember what it is in the show. I think it also starts with a G. Uh, Anyway, Rose is a vortex, meaning that she draws the power of dreams to her until her power can no longer be contained um, because she tears the barrier between the dreaming and the regular world apart. Um, Dream plans to kill her to stop the destruction, but Unity Kincaid, Rosa's grandmother, and again, one of the women impacted by Dream's imprisonment, sacrifices herself instead. There are a number of shorter stories as well. The story of Nada, the woman that Dream sends to hell for the crime of rejecting him, which didn't make it into the show. Is it my? Maziki? No, it's not that you're thinking of Mazikeen and that's Lucifer's Galt. 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 That's it. Galt. Um, So I I don't know why they left Nada out of the show. Like, she's in it. She's in hell. But they left. I wonder if they're just setting up for putting. Because they. I bet they're trying to connect it to Seasons of Mist. That's probably what they're doing. Yeah, because they're going to do a flashback. Okay. They didn't put everything in order. No, but I bet I, what they're going to do is they're going to take the Nada section out of the first arc or second arc and they're going to put it with Season of Mist instead. Which makes sense in the way in which they told Morpheus' story of being a hero. Because if you mm-hmm. put that in the beginning, you're like, wow, this guy fucking sucks. Because he does. Yeah, he does. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there, so there's that story. There's the story of Calliope, a muse trapped <sighs> by an author, and Dream of a Thousand Cats, in which cats aim to return the world to its natural state of having cats in charge. Um, so before we get too into the themes and stuff, I do want to talk about the history of the series because I actually think it's really important. And I, I feel like every time I do a comics episode, I'm like, and here's the history. But like, it is important to understand these things contextually to understand like why they're why anybody gives a shit about this series from the ni- from 1989. I also love the history. So great. That's what and this that's what this is all about. Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> making me happy. Yep. I love the history, especially in things that you know so much about. Because I mean, I had to look. Co- Comics are not my like super area of expertise. But you know more than most people. I know more than most people, but I feel like I don't because I'm surrounded by people who yeah, know more than true. me. Um, so the comic series began in 1988 under DC. Uh, much like Hellblazer, Sandman was part of the British invasion of comics in which British writers were hired to tell original stories that would get away from the traditional association between comics and superheroes. Okay, I have a question here. Yes. Why? Was there like an audience they were trying to target? Did yeah. they just want a different stories all of the above okay comics and superheroes rebranding 
I don't think it was necessarily rebranding. It was just like broadening the landscape of mm. what kind of stories could be told. Because what was selling in the U.S., to my understanding, was superhero comics. Mm-hmm. Whereas those superhero comics were not a dominant part of comics art in Europe. Europe had a much broader array of storytelling styles. And so they were trying, DC was trying to capture that by okay. hiring writers like Alan Moore, like Neil Gaiman, okay. like um, Jamie Delano. All it of worked. Those. Yeah, it worked. Um, Neil Gaiman was recruited to DC along with Jamie Delano, Alan Moore, and others by Karen Berger, who then launched Vertigo as an imprint of DC in the 90s. You can hear more about that side of the history in our episode on Hellblazer. I talked a lot about it there. Um, The original pitch for The Sandman by Neil Gaiman was a revival of a 70s-era series by Joe Simon and Michael Fleischer and illustrated by Jack Kirby and Ernie Chua. In that series, we have Garrett Sanford, who we see in in Gaiman's Sandman as the body of the man who is trapped in dreams by Brute and Glob. Hmm. But Hector Hall, who came afterward, is in his body. Confusing. Hmm. Now that I'm thinking about it, those details might be wrong. Check that for yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, both both of these characterizations of the Sandman um, do appear in the Sandman, the comic and the show in sort of cameos. Um, Berger suggested that they keep the name Sandman, but create a new character. Hmm. Uh, the series passed nearly in real time. Uh, references to events throughout the series match up with the time they were published and mentions of U.S. presidents, etc. line up with the real world. Like it was it was meant to be read in this time and place and to match up with it. Hmm. Um, this makes sense with the themes of the series, which positions myth, fiction, folklore, dreams and popular entertainment on a level playing th- playing field in terms of importance. Um, interestingly, the series ended up with a higher number of female readers and readers in their 20s. My note on this was just a bunch of like buff arms. Yeah. Because fuck everyone. Yeah. This like this series really brought a lot of women and older readers into comics. Why do you think? Because my first reaction is like women like the like this more complicated story. But I don't want to generalize like that. That seems wrong. No, I, I think it's a number of things. One, I, the story is not unkind to women. Right. Women are not exclusively damsels in this story. Mm-hmm. Women can be powerful and interesting. They are complex. They are not one note. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also uh, it was just a broadening of the demographic in general. Um, and when you broaden the demographic in general, you're going to attract women as part of it too. Um, <laughs> and imagine that women are half the amount of the population. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that it was not necessarily like any one factor so much as it was like, oh, this is different. And that can bring in a wider variety of readers, which includes women. At the time, um, readers in their twenties were older than the typical comic reading demographic. So it was, it was actually a big deal to have the average age of the Sandman reader be in the twenties, as opposed to like a teenager or younger. Um, and and these were readers too who had never read comics before. This was their first one. Um, I don't know that it still has that reputation in particular, especially now that it's the same age as me and therefore old in comics terms. Uh, but I think it still does maintain that bridge to comics for a lot of people who prefer novels, simply because it doesn't feel like the common con- like the common conception of what a comic is. A lot of these conversations we're going to have as I'm going through at least this first part of this outline was like oh like Watchmen oh like Watchmen absolutely they're uh, 
part of the exact same conversation. Yeah. Um, it's not that the Sandman is inherently different than other comics, only that it is perceived that way. And I, I want to make that abundantly clear. Comics can be all kinds of things. Sandman is one of the things comics can be. But to the American audience of that time, it was different than what they were used to seeing. Yeah, I remember hearing all this stuff about like Watchmen and being like, all right, what is this about? And I and I read it, I was like, this is a comic. Yeah. <laughs> this is a comic. This felt like a comic. It's a good example. It's really, it's really good. It's I really just, like it. It's just that be, post Watchmen, post Sandman, we have a broader idea of yeah. what comics can be. So these things no longer feel as revolutionary as they did. They can still be of excellent quality. Yeah. It's just they don't feel revolutionary in the same way. Um, part of that perception of Sandman is different from other comics is uh, factors into what form Gaiman is writing in, comic books or graphic novels. So my personal opinion, and this is a personal opinion, not a statement of fact, is that comic books come out in the roughly 24-page format and are collected into trade paperbacks, typically in story arcs. Graphic novels are less episodic, like a film compared to a TV show, even if there are multiple volumes. Again, this is my personal opinion. this, there are some things that straddle this line, right? Such as V for Vendetta. It is largely considered a graphic novel, even though it came out serially. Uh, I don't want to be prescriptive about this, but I think when we're talking about Sandman, it is worth interrogating how we talk about what form it is and not just the fact that like it's comics or it's graphic novels. Weekly release of TV show versus binging. Even that, uh, yeah, yeah. That's maybe a little bit closer, like as far as like... I just think it's the, uh, like... Uh, <laughs> Reading all this, I'm just like, I just, I get the difference. I get what people are saying, but it's just, it's still the fucking same thing. It's the same goddamn thing. It's not. It feels the same. It's not. It's not the same. The form, this is like uh, reading a, a short story collection on a theme versus a novel. They're not the same. But they're the same story. But they aren't always. So like, you really, can, you can pick up any issue of Squirrel Girl and presumably read it, or you can read a whole trade paperback and they're going to be two different experiences that may not differ all that much in quality. It's just a matter of how you read it. Whereas hmm. if you read a graphic novel and you just try to pick it up in the middle, you're not going to have any idea what the fuck is happening. Okay, so the, it's the experience then. Part of it, yes. But the thing, the, the issue here, and I'll get into this here, Uh, The issue is that many people use the term graphic novel as a mark of quality or prestigiousness, not as a form of visual storytelling. They use graphic novel to signify something of quality, whereas comic is something that is maybe not of quality. Um, It's often used to elevate the content of one of these kinds of stories over others of its kind, hence Sandman being considered a graphic novel despite coming out in serial format. Personally, again, I think that's bullshit, not only because Sandman was published serially, but also because Sandman is quite intentional about intentional about treating all kinds of stories as equally important. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that theme later, but it's important to note that while Shakespeare is treated as an important literary figure in the series, so is DC's Scarecrow. John Constantine is there. Listen, don't at me about Constantine because Mad Hetty literally says in Sandman, Constantine, she says it. I don't know what to tell you. I I won't I won't budge. I won't budge. It's Constantine. I won't budge. I, my opinion is it's both. It's fine. Comics are weird. Um, I told so one of my this is slightly off topic. Uh, one of my coworkers he absolutely loves Sandman. He absolutely loves it. He likes the show too. Um, and I told him about your Constantine, and he thinks it's brilliant. It is brilliant. He also said that there was goth before Sandman, but there wasn't goth really before death. <laughs> 
death, yeah, death invented goth. Yeah, he's he he was of the age, like the targeted age, and he said he's like when when death was there, that's when goth got real. Yeah, it was very funny. Uh, Sandman might be like quote unquote elevated in that it's telling a story that was uncommon in comics in that time period, but it is quite purposefully also a comic, right? Uh, I don't think Gaiman as a writer is interested in elevating the comic form. He's interested in telling a story through this medium. So what I'm getting at here is that a lot of times people want to use the graphic novel to denote common uh, quality, but a graphic novel is merely another form of storytelling and it gets, it gets iffy because like Watchmen and V for Vendetta, right? Both considered graphic novels. You can buy them in a single bound volume that can, that tells the entire complete story, right? But they were published serially. So what are they? Are they comics? Are they graphic novels? I don't know. I think to, to me, they both feel more on the side of graphic novels, but that's also comfortable to me because I don't look down on comics as an art form. I work in comics. It's very interesting. I get what you're saying, but I still just am like, I understand what you're saying, but when I think about it, I'm like, they're still just like, they're both comics to me, but I... That's... No, they are. Comics is an umbrella under which graphic novel exists. Yeah. It's just funny to me that people are like, oh, this is elevated. Well, it's because it has novel in it, Mary. It makes them feel smart. I guess. Because they could literally... So what happens when you get every single issue that comes out and at the end, is it then good because they're the whole story? No, it has to do with... No, it has to do with the quality of the comic. It has nothing to do with the form. So a good comic collected in a bound volume is a graphic novel. I'm trying to find this distinction really, but like the idea that people look down on one and not the other is just silly to me. I want to be clear. The people who are looking down on it, generally speaking, are not comics people. Comics people yes. understand <laughs> that, that makes these sense. are variations on an art form. I, just being around when Watchmen came out and seeing the discourse that suddenly everybody who is having in like like fucking like Rolling Stone and things like that. And and it suddenly being on like the top 100 books of all time and stuff like that, 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 that tracks in my mind. Yeah. And that, that was a lot of saying, well, Watchmen is a graphic novel, not comic book. And it is in fact, both. Well, I actually can't remember if Watchmen came out serially, but I know V for Vendetta did. So yeah. Cause we have some of those. Yeah. So that's the thing is that it's like, where do, like, is it a graphic novel because it's good then? <laughs> or is it a graphic novel because it's a complete story? Because Sandman's fucking long. That's a oh long ass novel. I know. I can see your fucking books. I was like, we're never going to get through all this. I know. Anyway, the point that I'm making here is that the category is often used in a way to denigrate comic books. Um, but it is also a real thing, right? Like, there's an inaccurate use of it that just means comics that I like uh, that is worth interrogating. So here's a quote from The Outsider, Neil Gaiman in the Old Testament by Cyril Camus. Um, Indeed, one of his major works, the comic series Sandman, 1988 through 1996, is widely regarded as a publication that was instrumental in ushering in the current seemingly endless wave of graphic novels or the so-called rise of the graphic novel. All the discourse heretofore produced about them seems to suggest that a graphic novel can only be defined in opposition to a comic book. Either phrase, graphic novel or comic book, refers at the same time to a narrative approach and to public publishing practices. 
In both of these regards, Sandman clearly debuted as a monthly series of comic books. It was devised, understood, and marketed as such. However, it then evolved into being devised, understood, and marketed as a cycle of graphic novels, and thus contributed to a radical change at the face of mainstream comics. I have a question, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if there's an answer to this, uh, or if you know the answer. So there was a lot higher older and female readers. Mm -hmm. Was that as it was coming out? Yes. Okay. Um, so this quote argues that Sandman began as a serial as serial comic books and evolved into graphic novels. And that honestly may be true. I don't know what Gaiman or the editorial team of Vertigo were thinking. Um, but I also question the need for a graphic novel to be an evolution, mm. which implies growth. Like, is Sandman as a graphic novel more evolved than Sandman as a comic? Well, we don't have the rest of the series to discuss yet, right? Like, I can't say yes or no to that. Um, But I think that this is more based on reception than on intent. Uh, Sandman got a lot of buzz for being different than most people expected of comics. As that buzz caught on and reached outside of the normal sphere of comics readers, I think there was an attempt to justify that buzz. Hmm. Um, Applying graphic novel to something published by a comics publisher in the comics form and engaging very much with comics as a medium feels like it's trying to elevate the form to be acceptable to mainstream audiences, which happens time and time again with comics considered especially good. Hmm. Um, It's very interesting, the the gymnastics being done. Yeah. Uh, Like there is a graphic novel is not a fake thing. No, but I but I but when I'm talking about like justifying your like for it right yeah i mean this happened to me i was i studied english like i saw this all the time uh essentially there's this assumption that if it is good and appealing to someone outside the general comics audience it must be a graphic novel emphasis on the novel rather than a comic book there's so much i mean that you could you could put this conversation in so many other things like animation being turned into a movie right is that better it's not or like a romance book versus like literature is that necessarily better no right right? so um like uh, that it's not this is obviously not just comics no this is not this kind of snobbery is not unique to comics um it's just especially prevalent in comics because the perception of comics until i would say like fairly in fairly recent history has been for children and it was because of comics like sandman like watchmen like v for vendetta like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Rises. I can't remember the name of it. Those kinds of comics that arose in the 80s that we finally got away from the perception that comics are for children. So is this before, after, or during the comics code? This is following it. Okay. And that makes sense. Because now you're rebelling it. Exactly. Okay. They're pushing pushing back against those things. This is why the history of it is so good and important. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, to me. <laughs> this is a quote from Neil Gaiman in The Multifarious Approach to the Superhero by Darian Harris Fain, who writes, Gaiman's early superhero work evinces traits for which he would become well-known, particularly a strong mythic element and interest in the nature and function of stories, especially about ordinary people juxtaposed with supernatural or godlike beings. At the same time, many of Gaiman's superhero stories are straightforward and traditional, while elsewhere he engages in humor, sometimes mixed with postmodern self-reflexivity. Finally, like he often did with the title character in Sandman, frequently Gaiman's treatment of superheroes is oblique rather than direct, focusing on ordinary characters while superheroes are on the margins rather than the other way around as in most superhero comics. Um, and I think this is this is actually something that sets the Sandman apart from other comics. Like this is actually something to me that does set, <laughs> set it apart. Like even something like Watchmen is about superheroes, right? Mm-hmm. It's also about how they're human. Um, but it is ostensibly a story about 
superheroes and the perception of superheroes. The Frank the Frank Miller Batman book still about a superhero. It's about the the human side of the superhero, but not so much. You know, he's not, he's still a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can look at the Sandman as a sort of superhero comic, and that its primary character is ostensibly a superhero, and that he has superpowers. Mm-hmm. But much like Greek myth, for example, the hero is extremely flawed. Uh, likewise, the mostly normal humans who exist in this world are just as interesting as the superheroes, and they make up the bulk of the story that the superhero sort of orbits around. The story is about Morpheus when you zoom all of the way out of it and you look at his character journey. But when you look at it by issue by issue, it's not about Morpheus, mm-hmm. right? I think that's masterful storytelling to be able to have a both a macro and a micro level. Um, but Morpheus is not... That necessarily the focus of the story as we see it now. He's always there, yeah. but it's also about Rose, or it's about Alex Burgess, or it's about John D, or it's about the people in the diner. I'm really curious. So, like, obviously, Neil Gaiman's a very talented writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we discussed in Good Omens, and I think true here, even though he wasn't as involved, I, I wonder if part of the reason a lot of that gets lost is just because it's really hard to portray that and so you end up dumbing it down not dumbing it down I don't want to say that but you end up stripping of everything that makes it that good because how are you going to do that in one season that you've only gotten right and I think that's just part of the constraint of adaptation Mm -hmm. I think that the most effective adaptations to me are ones that take the spirit of the thing and put it in a new form I do think this is a better adaptation than Good Omens oh yes I, I wholeheartedly agree um I think that taking the spirit of something and adapting it into a new form is what I hope for from adaptations. Um, It's never going to be one-to-one, right? It's never going to work out exactly the same. Um, But like, for example, uh, I think a good example is Fight Club. We've talked about that Mm -hmm. as an adaptation. Um, They use certain literary uh, tools in the novel to like estrange you or to like hint at um, the narrator's identities or, you know, that kind of thing. When you watch the movie, they use a different style of mm-hmm. doing these things. They use the tools available in the filmic medium to achieve much the same goal that the book does. And I think that's why it works so well as an mm-hmm. adaptation. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily any work of art that is, you know, quote unquote, unfilmable. Mm-hmm. It's just that it requires, like some making an adaptation of The Sandman that's going to satisfy me is going to require more than just like copy pasting the panel onto a screen and having the actors stand where they're supposed to stand. But I do think animated would have been better. I absolutely agree. <laughs> I do think animated. And I actually feel this way a lot. I mean, obviously, I'm a, I am really love a lot of animated um, TV shows and movies and stuff. But I just think there's so, when it comes to stuff like this, there's so much more like ability to tell the story that the images were showing in the comic. There is no CGI on this earth that looks as good <laughs> as animation in the style of the animation. Mm-hmm. Animation can welcome you into a strange world and you can buy it because it's animation. Yeah. But when you put a CGI whatever into a story with real people, it's always going to look funky. Yeah. Like, maybe someday it won't. But for right now, my brain goes, no, 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 no. I just think it's imp- it's really difficult to get something that's supposed to be so, un- like, inhuman mm-hmm. to work with literal human. Yeah. 
Um, there's a lot of writing about Sandman that touches on the history of comics in England, all of which was very interesting, but felt like it was getting out of the scope of this. I really wrote essay. I meant episode. Um, but very briefly, European comics that Gaiman and similar writers would have grown up with were less likely to feature superheroes, which were primarily the domain of American comics. And I think that's part of why so much of the British invasion, quote unquote, of comics uh, felt particularly fresh and exciting to American audiences. We were used to a particular kind of comic and people who had grown up with something different were bringing something new to the table while also engaging with the conventions that we were familiar with. And you can trace a lot of this through Neil Gaiman's work over time. As the quote says, his work tends to engage with a lot of these same things repeatedly, not in a way that feels repetitive, provided that you like what he's talking about. If yeah. you think that this whole stories are important thing is bullshit, then Neil Gaiman is never going to work for you. Um, I, it, when I was reading all like what you had to say in the outline about the stories part, it just really brought this everything together for me so yeah it's really important yeah to agree with that um but in a way where you you can see these things in conversation with one another and that works with sandman which is very much about art in conversation with itself um so this is a quote from in the sandman uh neil gaiman drew from comics history to create his own by Susan apollo this is a super short quote i just wanted to attribute it uh the sandman never attracted a single characteristic artist co collaborator artistically its steadiest through line was gaiman's imagination and prose so to return really briefly to something we talked about in the Hellblazer episode, I feel like this is emblematic of a lot of the Vertigo series still being talked about regularly today. They're usually writer name title, Game and mm -hmm. Sandman, Moore's V for Vendetta, Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, Returns, not Rises, <laughs> uh, which he, you know, at least Frank Miller did the art for The Dark Knight Returns. So like we have that. Uh, but comics are created by teams of people. And once they begin to leak out of the comic space, there's a tendency to lean on the writer as the creator of the comic rather than the comic as a team effort. Feels like a movie, right? Yeah, a, yeah. There's shit ton of people working on a movie. Right. Like even a screenwriter might be different from the writer. Yeah. Uh, in this case, as Polo points out, Sandman never had a core artistic team. It hopped around a lot with Gaiman McKean, who, McKean, who did the art, the cover art, and Berger being some of the only consistent contributors throughout. But does that make it solely Gaiman's comic? Not definitely at all. Not. Yeah, definitely not. He may have the ideas, but this is an art form consisting of words and lettering and colors and art, all of which combine to form the Sandman. It wouldn't work as well if it were purely prose. So why does Gaiman still get the majority of the credit for its creation? It's very capitalism of it. Yeah. Um, well, there is the fact that it would be very difficult to list every single contributor when talking about the Sandman as a whole. Um, but I also think that once the series made it out of comic spaces into the mainstream literary world, and once Gaiman started writing novels in particular, it was probably a bit comforting for people who disparaged comic work to say, oh, see, it's all right. He's really a novelist. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know this probably sounds ridiculous if you're not mired in the writing world, but this kind of snobbery is real and extremely frustrating. Uh, Gaiman is even one of the few speculative fiction writers who manages to transcend the sci-fi fantasy section of the bookstore, though you will still yeah, find that's his books wild. there. I yeah. never I never really thought about that. Yeah, he has managed to escape the confines. Um you could still find his books in the sci-fi fantasy section, You'll but you might find them both. Yeah, you may find them in both, depending on the book. Um and and he's also one of the few sci-fi fantasy writers who are read by people who don't gen generally read genre fiction. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I thought this kind of thing was actually addressed fantastically in the adaptation of Calliope with people at Maddox party saying that he transcended genre. 
Um, I sincerely hope that story wasn't autobiographical. Uh, but having studied English in college and therefore spending a lot of times around a lot of time around all kinds of writers, it felt so true about fiction as a whole, but also Neil Gaiman's work specifically. I in in college I studied two uh, Gaiman projects in two different classes. I read part of The Sandman for one class. I read. Um, Another one. I can't remember for another class. And I watched a documentary. Was that American I, Gods? It wasn't American Gods. Um, that should be added to our list next. It is. Ooh, it's on oh, there. So we just get them just, all. Just do the game. And, we did I Keanu think, Reeves. It's time for Gaiman. I think of all of the Neil Gaiman adaptations, American Gods is going to be your favorite. Probably. It's, I mean, it's got Brian Fuller. I, I'm pretty sure it is. But yeah. Anyway, I did. I, we read a lot of Gaiman work in my in like my um, English education and my college at one point hosted a reading for one of his books. Like even though even at the same school, I got a lot of pushback on genre fiction. You did. I remember. Yeah. I, I, that's just part and parcel of being in creative Snobbery. writing it is, is the idea that fiction or that uh, genre writing sci-fi fantasy in particular are lesser works of art than uh, literary fiction. So frustrating. It is super frustrating. Um, so this is a quote from The Sandman, a masterclass in unfaithful adaptation by Joe Sutliff Sanders, who we're going to hear from again later. Joe Sutliff Sanders has a whole career writing about Sandman. Um, so he wrote, uh, things have to change when literature moves across to the screen. Take the episode 24-7, perhaps the best episode of the new show. This story set in a diner is from what is coincidentally the first great issue of the Sandman comic and was told with incredible efficiency. Gaiman had single panels, for example, depicting the events of specific hours. That approach would become quickly tedious on TV, so the makers of the new series didn't try. Instead, they tore the story down to the emotional heart, threw everything else away, and wrote something that we know works on television. They turned it into a stage play. It gets the point of the original across without being distracted by the techniques of the original. Practical considerations aside, however, Netflix's adaptation of The Sandman is also making a statement about how how seasoned veterans like me don't exercise some sort of imagined authority over culture just because we were there in 1989. Okay, question. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we we talked about before this, the need for um, Sandman Morpheus to change. Mm -hmm. Could you say the same is true about it going to TV has to change or it doesn't work. Oh yes, absolutely. There and I like, can only is that part of this story. It has to be. And I know that I get, I'm pretty sure Gaiman has talked specifically about how parts of the story need to change with the times because and I, I don't want to spoil anything that's coming later, mm-hmm. but there's an arc coming up, probably season two, that was revolutionary for its time. It was mm-hmm. a big deal at the time. Now, no. Mm-mm. It needs to change. Yeah. It needs to be adapted. It needs to it well, needs even to not be stuck in the past. Just to be not even just to be in the past, but to just work on television and oh, yeah. get a, a greater audience. It like it even just feels like such like it's just part of the story. And I think that's so good. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that the show isn't beholden to appeasing older fans. I don't feel like it's trying to make readers of the comic feel good at the expense of the story that they're telling. I think that is why we see the more bright colors and yeah. softer like art and things like that, because that is what people want to see. Yeah. I mean, it's clear, like I would rather have seen that when I was reading the comic. But yeah. the art is very especially with the horrorness of it, it's really it is really appropriate for the comics. So yeah. I'll give it that. 
Um, I wish that I agreed more that the adaptation was taking things down to the emotional heart and working in a new format. Um, but aside from the last episode, which adapted Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope, I felt like a lot of the time I was watching an adaptation of Sandman the story without Sandman the comic. Yeah. Like if you read, here's a summary of the events of Sandman. Yeah. That's, it. that's to me, what it felt like was being adapted. We'll get more into it as an adaptation later, but I feel like there's so much of Sandman that exists beyond the words themselves, and I'm not sure the show really got there for mm-hmm. me. Um, that said, I do think the show resists being gatekeepy or inscrutable. Uh, I understand why people found it dull because many people did watch the show. They hadn't read the comic. They're just like, this is boring as shit. And they bounced off. That's fair. Um, But I think that those same people would not find the comic any better. Like they're going to find that just as dull, almost certainly. Well, especially because I feel like um, a lot, there's so many different stories and each one has their vibe and some of them worked for me and some of them like, this is boring. Yeah. Um, Not every story is for every person. Uh, I think it's remarkably approachable for something that is literally about, among other things, the interconnectedness of stories. Uh, There's fun little Easter eggs in there for people who like them or who like the inspiration, but you aren't shamed for missing them, right? Like the fact that, for example, uh, I'm pretty sure Netflix didn't have the rights to Wonder Woman. So Hippolyta is just some lady. (sighs) That's Wonder Woman's daughter. (laughs) um there are also some good i did not know that yeah she's wonder woman's daughter um there are also some good updates that i think also prevent the show from feeling gatekeepy fewer straight white men for one like that um but that brings me to the next topic which is progressiveness or the feel of progressiveness which is something that is often associated with neil gaiman himself and his various works of fiction Um, We're going to get a bit thorny here before we get into the adaptation and the themes of the comic and the show. Um, Gaiman's work in Sandman, both the comic and the show, get a lot of praise for progressive values and representation. And while I think that those things are not untrue, I also think it's worth picking apart exactly what is happening, especially looking forward to some of the later stories. I'm talking about a game of you. If you know, you know. It's in a game of you. I'll tell you later. Okay. I don't want to spoil it. I can't remember I've read a lot of it and I can't, I didn't remember a lot of it. A Game of You, I think, is where you gave up because it's the one about Barbie. Yes. Um, The comic is... Barbie. Yeah. The comic is largely, but not entirely, about white people. Right? That's just a fact. Um, People within the comic see Dream in a way that matches how they see themselves. Nada sees Dream as a black man. The cats see Dream as a cat, etc. It is interesting to me, then, that Dream is represented to us as white. A sort of ghostly, unnatural white, sure, but white nonetheless. I read this and I was like, fuck, Missy's so good. <laughs> like, that's such, like, your, your your English major is just shining there. Like, I never fucking thought, it. you're so fucking right. My English major jumped out. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, he is white, like yeah, a ghost. Yeah, but he is white. white. Um, he should have just been all black, to be honest. It would yeah. make more sense. <laughs> I know we're talking about things that happen in the text versus things that happen out of it, but there is a pervasive whiteness to the comics that I think is still worth mentioning. Thus far, the only character who isn't white that I can think of is Nada, whose role is actually reduced in the show so far. That said, the show does have a more diverse cast of characters than the comic. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad they made Rose, Jed, and Unity in particular black because the early episodes had a lot of black characters either dying or already in hell. Yeah, and and Rose was so likable. I yeah. thought Rose was so likable in the show, and I thought that that story and um, 
and Clippy story and the cats were my favorite. Yeah, I agree. Uh, like there so many black characters die in the first few episodes and t- I'm so I'm very glad that you had these characters later in the series who were black and who were not just, you know, on there screen to, to die. die. Um I also love the casting for Death, um, but she's only been in the one episode so far, so she has less of a presence than Rose. She is a really good casting. Oh, she's like, excellent. The people who are upset about it truly, like, she is, like, excellent she casting. She also is sometimes black in the comics. Cool your fucking jet. Just like people getting upset that Constantine is a woman, and she's literally a woman. Like, I get it. It's supposed to be, like, her aunt, his, Constantine's ancestor, yeah. but still. Nonsense. Um... There's also quite a bit more queerness in the show than there are, than there is in the comics, at least so far. Uh, characters who didn't have romances or had romances with people of a different gender now have some changes. For example, Alexander Burgess or Constantine slash Tyne, who despite being gender swapped in the show, maintained her female partner from the comics. Again, this is good and I'm happy about it. But once again, I want to be wary of heaping too much praise on the comic or the show. Especially when the, what you said in the beginning about Constantine mm. <laughs> being able to be by. <laughs> the Sandman is telling stories that involve queer people and people of color, but are not queer stories or stories that speak to the experience of being a person of color or any intersection thereof. When we eventually do the next couple of arcs, this will become very clear. The inclusion is valuable, but it is not the same as the authenticity that comes from a lived experience. That doesn't inherently mean that it is bad, but I want us as an audience to be aware of the difference between visual representation, what we see on the screen, and the story we're being told. That doesn't mean that every queer story or every story about a person of color needs to be solely about that, only that like... How much can I praise the addition of Alex Burgess being gay when it's really just there for flavor, right? Yeah. It's not like he's a main character. Uh, Modern Constantine, who we know as bisexual, is only in one episode. Like, I don't, I can't heap praise upon it for one thing. To be clear, this does this does not make the inclusion bad. This is not me saying the show is homophobic or white supremacist or any of those things. Um... It's just that there's a desire among fandoms to heap praise upon something for the mere fact that it includes a marginalized person, often because they, quote unquote, didn't have to. And like, sure, they didn't have the to. The bar's on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> but visual representation is not enough for me to fall over praising it. And I want us to be thoughtful of that when we talk about things like this. Am I leading all of this into priming us for a discussion about a game of you? Maybe so. When I read this part, it made me think of... Um the McElroy's. <laughs> yeah. Like, they could do one thing and be like, oh my God. Yeah. They're such feminists. Yeah. Speaking of feminism, let's talk about that. All right. So this is a quote from Serialization and Empire and Neil Gaiman's The Sandman by Justin Millette, who writes, uh, Morpheus restores his kingdom, but increasingly finds himself struggling with the changing world around him. After freeing his former lover, Calliope, from a magically charmed imprisonment similar to his own, she tells him, quote, you have changed an Eros. In the old days, you would have left me to rot forever without turning a hair, unquote. While Morpheus is always reticent and brooding, numerous characters throughout the series point out that he has changed since his imprisonment. Part of his struggle is that in, 
is the fact that in spite of redeeming and rebuilding his domain, Morpheus is con- constantly restless and uncertain about his proper role as its as its ruler. Don't read the next sentence. It's a spoiler. <laughs> One of the things I appreciate about Calliope as an arc, and honestly, the diner issue as well, is that it is unflinchingly brutal in its portrayal of exploitation. It was so difficult to read and watch both of Absolutely. those. Absolutely. Especially Calliope's. And mm-hmm. I appreciate the changes made in the show where I, like, um, it was pretty awful to watch what happens to Calliope. And mm-hmm. I get like that's the reality of it, but I'm very, I'm very grateful. There are some <laughs> circumstances in which it's better to use our imagination. Well, and I remember you talking about how Neil Gaiman didn't want, right, Calliope to I be am, sexualized? I forgot to fact check myself okay. here, but I'm pretty sure in the Absolute Sandman, he talks about the fact that he did not see the art for the opening of Calliope before it was published. And he did not like it because he felt it was too sexual. I think, like, I, I, I thought that maybe like this would, the show would be him away from for him to like redeem that but also like it being sexy i think also kind of like works and like you should feel fucked up if you like this but then then at the same time like men and some men won't care right yeah (laughs) it's complicated um so that's one thing again that that i appreciate is that both calliope and 24 7 um the the comic and the show are absolutely unflinchingly brutal in the portrayal of exploitation. I had to close my eyes at a lot of time for Like I straight up just like, nope. Yeah. Both are about, among other things, how stories have the potential to hurt as well as inspire. The diner, because in both the show and the comic, John D is using the people of the diner as paper dolls to fulfill whatever fantasy it is he wants to see. And Calliope, because the writers both value the stories they tell and the benefits they reap from telling them over life itself. <sighs> that one was so difficult. Yeah. There's a lot about this series I have to bite my tongue about because it can lead to major spoilers for the end. But I think there's a mirroring here between Morpheus, who for much of time has been callous and cruel. We've seen Nada in the comic, and but also Rose Walker, and we'll see much more later. Um, he's not as overt in, in terms of his exploitation or his callousness as Fry, Maddock, or John D. But he has so much power, and he is content to let suffering go on to soothe his own bruised ego. It feels like billionaires. Yeah. The fact that he helps Calliope out here is notable, but as we'll see later in the series, he's also responsible for a lot of terrible things that have happened to Calliope specifically himself. And it's like getting her out of that situation. Again, the bar is at the ground. Yeah. Uh, How much change does saving her in this instance actually represent if he is a not uh, a not unremarkable figure in what led to her imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a quote from Rape and Revenge in graphic detail, Neil Gaiman's Calliope in the Sandman comic series by Justin Gianni. Um, although Oneros's rule Oneros's role within this narrative is minimal. He appears in one scene with Maddock and one with Calliope. His impact on Calliope's life is profound. He supports Calliope's liberation from her sexual enslavement, empathizing with her abject condition of forced imprisonment, and in the end serves justice by punishing Maddock's crime of violent exploitation. In this way, Oneros's masculine subjectivity is set in contrast to the selfish malevolence of both Maddock and Fry where his empathetic understanding of a female other becomes the source of Calliope's revenge and liberation. Oneros's significance as a model of masculinity is considerable when viewed within the larger cultural context of graphic literature. When understood as a genre that is primarily produced by and targeted at boys or men, the depictions of non-hegemonic masculinity, such as that represented through Gaiman's character of Oneros, can be seen as a significant contribution to reshaping masculinity apart from hegemonic constructions, hegemonic, I can't ever remember how to say this word. I think it's hegemonic. 
hegemonic. Anyway, coming from a hegemony. um, (laughs) Sorry, let me go back. Uh, It can be seen as a significant contribution to reshaping masculinity apart from hegemonic construction of violence, dominance, and oppression. So what is impressive is not that Morpheus himself doesn't suck in this instance, right? Which is only part of his journey. Look at how he treated Nada. If you read the Shitty comic, baby, because it wasn't in the show. Um, but that doesn't. But that he doesn't suck in the context of this medium, right? That is an important distinction to make. Hmm. It does. Who fucking cares if he didn't suck this one time? It is important. More important that he doesn't suck in this medium, in the time period of 1989 or whatever, um, and in this very metatextual way, since both Maddock and Fry are writers. And notably, it takes his own imprisonment to get him to have this more empathetic approach to the suffering of others. Despite him living for literally ever. Yeah, they are no longer just other because he can identify with them on the basis of that suffering. He would be the worst of. Truly. Uh, How much credit can we give him for this rescue, though, if he only gains empathy once he experiences that exploitation for himself? Um, that said, I think it is worth noting that comics in this time were largely targeted at men, especially young men. I don't think that Sandman is not, but in depicting a character like Morpheus, who does exhibit traits that resist hegemonic masculinity, I think it does do something refreshing. His punishment for Maddox, which should have been Calliope's to dish out, but whatever, um, is essentially to give him exactly what he wanted and let him tear himself apart in the process, which is different from the typical superhero beat him up approach, right? He is so good at, uh, um, d- like, punishments. Absolutely. The punishments of the serial killers, perfection. Oh, I was so bummed that they took Eternal Waking out of the show. What was that? That was what he did to, I think it was Alex Burgess, or maybe oh, where oh, he's oh, yeah. continually trapped in the cycle of waking up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like that's such good that's such good punishment yeah absolutely that comes with with living forever yeah because at first you're like that doesn't seem like when I was first reading the the um, serial killer ones I'm like that doesn't seem like that bad like it doesn't seem like that's enough like these are serial killers and then I realized exactly what he meant by that mm-hmm. and I was like oh fuck yeah that's bad um, I don't want to overpraise it especially since this came out in 1989 and we have better examples now but we know Neil Gaiman is invested in the power of stories by the very existence of Sandman Calliope is very much about the harm that men specifically due to women muses figurative and literal in the name of art and how much of that harm is excused if the art is good enough this is so true i don't think it's forgiven as much but like it made me think of kanye Mm -hmm. and um the way in which he has been abused his Mm ex-wife um despite what you think about the kardashians he's been terrible yeah um and while i don't think as many people excuse him for multiple different reasons it does feel like there's an excuse for his art right so telling that story and making morpheus despite his previous actions stand against that torment is an important story for the assumed audience to read the idea that even if you've done terrible things in the past you can stop you, you can just st- not you can stop anytime um, this is a quote from from the same essay, Rape and Revenge in Graphic Detail, in the Gaiman's Calliope in the Sandman comic series by Justin Justine Gianni. Um, as he has shown climbing the career ladder, Maddox's egotism and hypocrisy are evident. When at the book launch for his novel and my love, she gave me light. Maddox is praised by a crowd of adoring fans. Maddox is pictured beside a young female fan who praises him for his representation of strong female characters. To this compliment, so good. to this compliment, Maddox replies that he quote regards himself as a feminist writer unquote. The hypocrisy of his self 
self-proclaimed feminism reveals not only his ruthless possession of Calliope's creativity, but also his deceitful exploitation of the female voice within literary discourse. His appropriation of the feminist label also highlights the performative facade of his public persona. Hello, Joss Whedon. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I like about the show is how much harder it went on Maddox. Oh, God, it was so intense. I was amazed the show went fucking harder than the comic. Uh, Him talking about how important it was to have 50% of the crew on his film being women or people of color, for example. That was like, that's one of the like changing to like modernize yeah. it that work just like absolutely mm, chef's kiss. Yeah. Uh, it speaks to how easy it is for artists to pay lip service to social justice causes while still being exploitative in their personal lives. I don't think the invocation of J.K. Rowling is incidental, even if her name isn't dropped in this like in the specific mm-hmm. context of exploitation. Uh, she very famously wrote a story about the importance of love and tolerance and yet spends her days and money spewing hateful bullshit. Like, is a story more important than a person? Of course not. And the story points quite clearly to how many excuses are made for men like Maddox because of their quote-unquote artistic genius. Even the greatest guy can be shit, as yeah. everybody is learning with the Try Guys and Ned. <laughs> I never learned more about people in a short amount of time as I have. <laughs> the Try Guys. The Try Guys. I guess Eugene was like best friends with his wife. Oh, wow. So I think he might die. Oh, no. Poor Eugene. He's the only one I know. No, I think that he might kill Ned. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Um, I don't really know anything about these people, but TikTok thinks I want to. Um, so this is a quote from Neil Gaiman and Sandman's Calliope in the Me Too era by Kaylee Hearn. Full disclosure, Kaylee Hearn is one of the editors at WAC. I've worked with her before. Um, <laughs> the story can be criticized for the fact that Calliope is only saved once her pissed off ex shows up, though her plight deliberately mirrors Dream's own decades-long imprisonment at human hands. The punishment he inflicts on Maddox then can be seen as one survivor avenging another. As Maddox pleads pleads that he needs Calliope for his ideas, Dream curses him with ideas in abundance, overwhelming him with so much inspiration that he mangles his fingers into bloody sausages, a wonderfully grotesque detail from Jones, trying to get them out. Calliope regains her freedom and her proper glory. She bestows mercy, though not forgiveness, on her abuser. A horror story like this cannot be said to have a happy ending, but it is a restorative one. Mm -hmm. In the end, Richard Maddock is left with the void that his with the void that is his own mind. The abrupt conclusion at least allows us the fantasy that he never skulks around in the half shadows of a comeback tour like a disgraced (laughs) comedian, nor do we ever have to see his fans popping up on Twitter demanding, what happened to separating art from the artist? As Hearn points out, there is a fantasy in this story, the idea that wretched men like Maddox are actually punished for their crimes. While men might be punished in some respects, it's only rarely that their lives meaningfully change. Harvey Weinstein is in jail, but what about the women whose lives he dealt irreparable damage to? What about the number of other men and people of all genders, but this story is speaking to a very specific kind of male genius. Uh, What about all of the other numbers of people who have exploited people and are still doing tours or raking in money or being praised as geniuses because the art was deemed more important than the harm? I learned that the lead singer from um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers is a bad person mm. and like was arrested for sexual battery, domestic battery. Mm. I think it was also had to do with sex and stuff like that. Because um, Bob was like, I can't believe like he's like, I hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he's like, and I can't believe that they're still even a thing. And I was like, why? And then he told me and I looked it up. I was like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, it happened in the 80s, but they still... So go around. Also, like, a bunch of... I mean, this shouldn't surprise anybody. I watched this TikTok, and it was, like, all the metal bands that are really bad people. Like, bands that are, like, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, I think. That's not a metal band. 
No, but they were on that list. Oh, yeah. Billy Corgan is a fuck. They um, still do well. Yeah. So can you separate the art from the artist is a difficult question to answer definitively, right? But we know the victim here more in, in, intimately than we know the art. We know Calliope. We do not know Maddox writing. We've never read it. What seems more important now, the art we've never consumed or the person whose life was exploited? Everybody has a personal threshold for this kind of thing, so I'm not saying you have to drop whatever thing it is that this evokes for you. I still have music that I listen to by people I know that have heard others, for example. Mm -hmm. My consumption of media is not pure. Um, But I think this story does something important, which is to strip away the art and say, here's the victim. What should happen to the exploiter? And make it very easy. What happens when we apply that to our own lives, right? What happens when we look at the thing that is important to us? Let's say Harry Potter for the sake mm-hmm. of a famous example. What what happens when we look at Harry Potter and we say, this is important to me. But what happens if we look at the person who is hurt by her rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Then what is more important? Is it the Harry Potter memories or is it the real people who are harmed mm-hmm. by J.K. Rowling's actions? And I think then it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. It is. It's just like... It's just a personal line. I had this conversation with my husband's friends. It's a personal line in which you can make. And um, I'm going to be real honest. Some of those lines I'm going to judge you for. Yeah, for me. If you're soliciting to McCafferty, <laughs> I don't know. I know you have a hard time with anyone who does anything with Harry Potter. It's It depends on what the anything is. And I've talked about this before. But the line for me is, is this thing, whatever it is, we'll say Harry Potter for the sake of example, is it still part of your public identity? Mm-hmm. If it is... I am going to judge you for it. Mm -hmm. I am not going to feel comfortable with that. If you, you know, every Christmas watch Harry Potter with your family on the DVDs you already own, you know what? Okay. You do you. Like, I'm not, but like people who make money off of Harry Potter today, people who build build their identity on Harry Potter today. Vans did line with them. Yeah. Legos. Yeah. I, I, like, I can't, in 100% honesty, I judge people for that. Yeah. Um, I think that your personal line is different from your public line. Mm-hmm. Um, so like what I do in my personal life is different from what I broadcast publicly. So like I'm not going to go out and put brand new on a on a public playlist, but I might listen to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to throw my but to put myself under the bus. That's yeah. a good example. I'm not going to go put it on a playlist. I'm not going to wear go, <laughs> I'm not going to wear a brand new T-shirt. Yeah, I'm not going to. But if but I might put it on the playlist I've been listening to. Like I literally have two brand new songs on the the like pl- daily playlist I've been listening to. Yeah. Um. But like, yeah, I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to buy anything from them. I'm not going to put it on. Like I would never put brand new on our patreon spotify right it's you know it's complicated but we have to we the thing that this story does is it forces us to to side with the victim like we have no choice but to side with the victim mm-hmm. we have no idea what maddox art is like it could um, be real shit it could be real shit it's probably not based on the events of the story <laughs> but like it could be and in forcing us to take the side of the victim the story encourages us to to do the same when it comes to these questions in our own life. Like, what is my alignment with Harry Potter or J.K. Rowling? No matter how important that series was to me growing up, knowing what I know now, do I do I care more about the victim or do I care more about Harry Potter? Mm-hmm. And for me, the line is the victim. Mm-hmm. I care more about the people who have been hurt by her rhetoric than I care about my memories of the series. And I am curious if part of the reason why it's still just so, like Harry Potter and spe- specifically, is so part of the culture and people are still consuming is because one not a lot of people like know what turfs are mm-hmm. and two not a lot of people have friends or family that are trans or non-binary mm-hmm. and just literally don't have that like when they see her post something about 
women and being treated equally, they're not seeing the red flags. And the oh no, she's she has. She's she's she she's is a masterful. writer. She is a writer. She knows how to word things so yeah. that they sound reasonable. Yeah. And I think another issue is that Harry Potter is like for many people the first fandom, mm-hmm. and fandom is as much about your identity with the thing as it is like the actual act of enjoying it. So when you've built your identity on Harry Potter, it's a lot harder to get rid of it than when you just like casually read the books. It was really hard. And the book is like orchestra. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. (laughs) Let's talk about stories and archetypes. Yeah, let's do it. Um, Neil Gaiman's writing is about stories to the point that it's become a bit of a meme. Uh, (laughs) One of Morpheus's many names names is prince of stories and the series deals with the origin of stories being the dreaming the ream draw the ream the realm <laughs> the dreaming, that's, that's a different dream. that's a different dreaming. show the ream dream overseas <laughs> so one of morpheus's many names is prince of stories and the series deals with the origin of stories being the dreaming the realm dream overseas in dreams library are every book ever written and not written and as we've discussed a lot of the story itself is about stories the power they hold how they can go wrong and so on Suffice it to say, this is a story about stories. What this means is not stories are cool or I love stories so much as it is that stories are a fundamental way of understanding and shaping the world. I am going to get you a sweatshirt that on the front says stories are cool and on the back says I love stories. (laughs) (laughs) I would wear it. (laughs) It's just like the sweatshirts are like video games or, you know, (laughs) stories are cool. I love stories. (laughs) In the comic, this idea is made literal. In real life, quote unquote, stories are anything from history as it's taught to fiction inspiring things like cell phones. Famously, cell phones were invented because of the, I don't know what they're called, the walkie talkies from Star Trek. Um, the language we the use comms. I don't know if comms. It could be comms. Uh, the language we use to tell these stories also shapes the world. Think of the way that existing in a world based on a binary system of gender makes it hard for us to shake the urge to refer to people by gendered pronouns. Mm-hmm. Without popular language to describe people who don't fit that binary, it's much harder for people to conceive of non-binary people. To be clear, it isn't impossible, and bigotry still plays a role, but. When you first introduce the idea of a non-binary person to some to somebody who is raised in uh, a system with a binary with a binary idea of gender, it's hard for them at first to conceive of what it means to be non-binary. This, I'm sure, is a very big argument with younger people to older people. I mean, I can understand it's hard. Yeah, like even for me, it's hard. If you have never, if you have never heard the idea of being non-binary before, it can feel like now. Hold on a second. Well, you have to pick. It just it's yeah that that's not for me what it's for me it's just I have to like for a long time I had to understand that that is a separate thing yeah right it's it's not like I don't feel like someone has to pick right but I, it's it's I have to see them that way I can't see them as they're right as they are born as Jackson did right um you can think also of America's two party system in which there are two political axes Democrat and Republican or conservative and liberal. In fact, there are many political parties and beliefs inside and outside of those categories, but binary thinking puts those two at opposite ends of a spectrum and suggests there is nothing else. Um, The point I'm getting at is that language and stories are our way of understanding the world, whether or not they are real, right? The, The gender binary is not real, but it is our way of understanding the world. So therefore, when something contradicts that, it can be difficult to reconcile that. Um, again, some of that comes from bigotry, 
Some of it just comes from the fact that we're raised in a binary system and we don't know that we can think outside of it. Um, it just is. Yeah. This is a quote from Queering Space and Neil Gaiman's illustrated works by Renata Lucena Dalmaso and Thais Maidea. Um, Dream's gemstone is retrieved from inside Rose's body from where her actual heart would be, but its heart-shaped form is ideographic rather than biological. The space where the action takes place interferes, therefore, with the properties of language and its performative power. In the dream world, not only can one will things into existence, but one can also play with the semantic and material values of those very things. So within the dreaming, in the episode slash issue where Unity takes over from Rose as the Vortex, she asks for Rose's heart. I did not know it was that gemstone. When I read this, I was like, whoa, <laughs> really, truly full circle here. Um, Rose reaches into her chest and pulls out a heart symbol. Which to us represents love, right? Mm -hmm. This visual symbol communicates more to us than a biological heart would. It tells us a story. The visual representation of a heart symbol tells us something completely different than an anatomical heart. And further, the transfer of this non-literal heart has material effects on the dreaming and those effects, though that affects the waking world as well. We can think of the dreaming as something akin to Jung's collective unconscious, something that I know we've talked about in previous episodes, but I can't remember which ones. So that's on you. Um, (laughs) The basic idea is that humans share an unconscious mind space, regardless of nationality, upbringing, et cetera, et cetera, from which various archetypes and ideas spring. And that is why similar stories appear throughout different cultures without those cultures necessarily interacting. Stories of great floods present through huge amounts of cultures Mm -hmm. even cultures that never interacted uh tricksters very popular a great mother figure etc in the world of sandman the collective unconscious is the dreaming which all people visit while asleep and which contains the creative works of all of mankind even those never written that's one of lucien's jobs is to oversee the library which contains every single story ever published and also all the ones that were never published lucienne is the is the true absolute treasure yeah of just everything yeah um dream actually says this in the show which made me want to throw something (laughs) Uh, but before i get into that here's a bit on the collective unconscious i want to say one thing okay that um i really liked one of the changes i really liked is keeping unity old yes i very much like that i appreciated that yeah um not some hot lady. <laughs> so this is from Folklore in the comic book, The Traditional Meets the Popular by Elizabeth Wine, who writes, whether or not the creators, their illustrators, or the readers of comic books individually and personally believe in a collective unconsciousness is moot. The point is not whether they actually subscribe to these theories in terms of their personal beliefs, but that the writers do make use of such elements in the fiction they create, developing the mystical nature and atmosphere of such an interpretation of psychic unity, and that the readers do cull these elements from the works they read. The characterization of the swamp thing as the green man of folklore, the continuous references to the trickster in relation to John Constantine, the hero quest of dream and the central role of the hecate and sandman make this clear while the readers may or may not consciously understand these as archetypal representations they certainly understand their use in this these series on an unconscious level expecting certain events actions and responses from their archetypal heroes as is evidenced by letters from readers printed at the end of each issue in the same way abstract expressionist Adolf Gottlieb sought to appeal to his viewers' collective unconscious by conveying images of universal meaning through his work with pictographs. It appears that the comic books of the late 20th century present characters that appeal to their readers' collective unconscious by conveying narratives laced with references of universal meaning. 
What this that was beefy. It was a beefy one. What this quote argues is that many comics of the late 20th century, Sandman included, were tapping into the idea of the collective unconscious and archetypal figures, whether they did so intentionally or not. It doesn't matter whether these creators believe in the collective unconscious as a real thing. The point was to create the association between the figures in their stories and the larger cultural context, even if they had never read or heard of Young. I wonder why. Which, to be honest, is unlikely. We'll get there. Um, what's important is that nobody needs to be aware that this is happening, as in nobody needs to be fami- familiar with Young's archetypes, for example, for it to happen. Trickster figures are common in folklore from pretty much every culture, and Constantine is just one iteration of that from somebody who no doubt liked other trickster stories. Mm-hmm. But having that archetypal connection, even if the reader and creator are not aware of it, does place a contemporary, as of the late 80s, uh, a contemporary work in conversation with every previous invocation of that archetype. John Constantine is just the latest iteration of a trickster figure. Mm -hmm. But you can trace through John Constantine every trickster figure that came before, and the things that appeal to us about trickster figures in mythology can be the same things that that appeal to us about that character. And this is something that occurs repeatedly throughout Sandman. It's very much about archetypes and the pervasiveness of stories, especially because it brings in characters from myth and folklore, as often as it brings in characters from comics, history, and stories. All of these things sprang from the collective unconscious, and in Sandman, they all interact with one another because they're all of equal importance. They all spring from the same well, the Mm -hmm. dreaming. Um... The real world is a series of stories we choose to believe, just as folklore is a story, comics are a story, and so on. Um, Also, note the mention of Dream on a Hero's Journey. I'm not sure I agree, but we'll have to wait for later episodes to see why. I bought a whole book about it. Um, This is another quote from the same essay, Folklore and the Comic Book, The Traditional Meets the Popular by Elizabeth Wine. Um, You'll also recognize this quote from the Hellblazer episode, because it was also (laughs) applicable here. Um, While cross-cultural comparisons and the study of archetypes have been argued against and discarded as unworkable in academic circles, works on these subjects like that of J.G. Fraser, Andrew Lang, and Robert Graves, as well as the subsequent work of Young, are still very popular with comic book writers and their audience. Neil Gaiman, the creator of Sandman, tells of rejecting a book on mythic archetypes, not because of any intellectual disbelief, but because, quote, There's a level on which you shouldn't be trying to do this stuff too consciously. There's a level on which you should know how it feels, on which you go by gut feeling, and you know that you've succeeded when the story feels inevitable, unquote. The idea is not to consciously follow or obey a set pattern. If it's done correctly, in Gaiman's view, it will fall into that pattern. This argues not for a conscious use of academically, quote-unquote, identified archetypes, but in keeping with Young, the development of characterizations that fit our past and unconscious definition of archetypes. Um, from what I understand, Gaiman was more involved in the adaptation of the Sandman than he was in American Gods, but less than Good Omens. So to be clear, I'm not trying to cry hypocrisy here so much as use the fact that Dream literally invokes the collective unconscious as a sort of demonstration of why the show isn't really working for me on the same level. (laughs) In the dream, in, in the show, Dream literally says it's the collective unconscious and I wanted to throw something because I did not want to hear that. It's pretty obvious that it is. Like that's exactly. one of, that's one of the ones where I'm like, did you <laughs> And even I think if someone doesn't even know the word exactly. the collective unconscious, they, they can get the point. That's exactly the <laughs> issue is that you don't need to know it to get it. You do not have to have read young to understand what the collective unconscious is. You can get the idea that the dreaming is the place from which stories come. In fact, adding collective unconscious might confuse some people. Yeah. Um, the comic not very- that they're stupid. I want to say. Yeah. 
The comic very much operates by feel. There are direct references to things throughout it. There are winks and nudges, etc. But it assumes that either I get it or that I am willing to go along with it, even if I don't understand it. There are lots of times I have no idea what the fuck Neil Gaiman is talking about in the comic. Like, I'm just like, I don't know what you're saying here, but okay. That's, yeah, yeah. That's when it gets hard to read. Yeah. I'm like, what? (laughs) I th- I don't think that's true of the show, which doesn't trust me enough to understand that the dreaming is the well from which human imagination springs. It feels like it has to tell me. But as this quote demonstrates, you don't need to tell me for it to work. I mean, there's um, Barbie has her fucking snuffleupagus in there. Martin Ten Bones. <laughs> yeah, we can we um, can we can get the imagination yeah. comes from here. Um, people can get the gist even if they don't have words for it because words are only a way to describe what already exists. Mm-hmm. Words and definitions are always going to lag behind truth, which is precisely why stories and language are such a key part of Sandman. Something happens, we aim to describe it, and the description, fictional or real, changes the shape of the story mm-hmm. and and the and potentially the shape of thoughts about the story. So by adding that stuff, you are you are not doing what you did. You, yeah, by by. By consciously, by deliberately invoking the collective unconscious in as many words, you are robbing the story of its storiness. Yeah. You have now made it a lesson. (laughs) Yeah. Um, After school lesson, Sandman. Yeah. This is all very abstract. uh, But my point is that one of the things I didn't like about the show was the fact that it didn't seem content to let me feel things without explaining them to me. It wanted to tell me the story before I could experience it. They led too much with the serial convention. The f- it is horrifyingly funny when you figure out what the serial convention is. But before we've even introduced the serial convention, they tell us that they're serial killers. I know that was kind of that was uh, that was kind of sad. Yeah, it's so good. It was a it's real also letdown. like a real good idea. Like not the serial, but like the the fact that you use like serial. Yeah, the, the most boring thing. Yeah. Um. They outright reference the collective unconscious, all this kind of stuff. Stories aren't just told through words and visuals and sound. They're also felt, right? I think the feel, the response to a story is as much part of the story as however the story is told. And I'm not sure the show went far enough toward letting me feel rather than just be told yeah. what was going on. And especially, like, I feel like this this kind of show is the perfect show to let you feel. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of vibes. Yeah. <laughs> so many vibes. Um, Acolytes of Horror, in my opinion, one of the best channels doing horror video essays on YouTube, released a video about Sandman that I think hits the nail on the head as far as why the adaptation didn't work for me as much as I hoped it would. It's not that the adaptation is necessarily bad. I actually don't think that it is. Um, But there are two key issues. The character journey for Morpheus, which I can't talk too much about because it would spoil the arc of the comic. uh, And the fact that the show is more fantasy than horror fantasy. Um, The comic is grotesque and scary. And even the scariest episode of the show, 24-7, is substantially less disturbing than its counterpart in the comics. Um, So this is a quote from that video. Netflix is the Sandman horror fantasy without fear, which is by Acolytes of Horror. Um, where he says, there's plenty of weirdos, but no freaks. So many of the characters are a lot sexier than their original designs. Spoken with a shot of uh, Jenna Coleman as Constantine. Uh, John D, Despair, Alex Burgess, Cain and Abel, Bruton Glob. Even the serial killer convention looks warm and inviting. There just isn't a whole lot of ugliness. Um, there's plenty of weirdos, but no freaks is such a strong statement to be made about this show. Um, yeah. There's a lot that's interesting about this show and a lot that's weird, but there's very little that's 
repulsive. I think that they were just afraid to do that. Because I think if you ask somebody who didn't watch or consume a lot of horror, they would say, yeah, there's a lot of freaks here. But as I said to Missy before we started this, I feel like it gave us... Uh, diet freak or freak zero as in like coke zero where like it's there but it's made from fake yeah Um, I like it yeah there's there's just so little about the show that is repulsive there's very little that disturbs Mm -hmm. even John D the worst person looks nicer and his actions can almost be said to come from a good place if you squint he's the one that's supposed to look like a gremlin right yeah he's supposed to look disgusting like like skeleton gremlin yes yes uh, and everybody really is so clean and well-meaning. Um, I won't go the fuck off about Constantine. While I did like Jenna Coleman's performance, it felt like she was performing a related character who's kind of an asshole, but not to the same extent. I would watch a whole show on her, though. I would, too. I loved her. I would, too. I would watch that show. It's not the same to me. No. But But I fucking I loved it. her. Um, I thought she was one of the strongest for me as somebody somebody who I would like if I had to pull out different stories that I would watch hers is one of them. Yeah. But I also feel like we didn't get a complete story of her. So. Right. Um and like weird as this is, I feel like Constantine in the show, like her coat is perfectly emblematic of my issue with the show. Like I know this is going to sound weird, but but bear with me. That is an impractical coat for someone who ends up dealing with the worst things imaginable, right? Mm-hmm. That is a dry clean only coat without a spot of dirt to be seen on it. Or blood. Or blood. If it rains, that coat's going to be soggy. It's pretty, but impractical. Her performance was solid and I liked the character who she was portraying, who, like much of Sandman, was more in the vein of fantasy than horror fantasy. The coat to me is just emblematic of everything being too clean, too pristine, no room for filth. And like, a trench part of the appeal of a trench coat is that it keeps the rain off, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't get wet. Is that not literally the character John Constantine? Keep everything out so you don't get dirty. <laughs> Her coat is going to soak up anything that gets on top of it, and that's just emblematic to me of the rest of the show being about prettiness and appeal rather than about the ugliness and the truth. Two different kinds of dirties that needed to be opposite. Yeah. So this is another quote from that same video. Netflix is the Sandman, horror fantasy without fear, backlights of horror. Uh, The world of the Sandman is much more crowded and complicated than just dream. He's barely even in a lot of it. These stories are not about heroes learning lessons so much as they're about the importance of stories and how we need stories to make sense of a world without heroes. And with that definition in mind, maybe you can already see how important the horror elements of these stories are in driving that point home. So the idea of a world without heroes is something that I think will become important as we look more at the rest of the series. There's more in this video that really gets at the idea of heroism in the series and why the final scene with Morpheus making new dreams hit a really sour note for me and emphasize that horror was missing from the show. But we can't get into all of that because we haven't read the whole series. Um, It felt like a complete done, right? It felt like a like, and now the story is over. Right. Um, The idea... Oh, if we live in a world without heroes, nobody is going to save us, right? If there are no heroes, there may not be any villains either. There's just us. Now, before anyone gets pedantic, this does take place in the DC adjacent universe, the comic more so since they were actually able to use Scarecrow, for example. Um, But Sandman and similar comics of this era were deconstructing the American comic industry's reliance on superheroes as a storytelling device. That's the entirety of Watchmen. Heroes are flawed, too. Um... 
The idea that the heroes and the monsters are us is an uncomfortable truth, and the comic exaggerates that. Like, mm-hmm. John D. looks like he should not be alive, <laughs> right? Um, but some of the most awful people in it are not the Endless or even the supervillains. They're Jed's abusive foster family. Ugh. They're Fry and Maddock, or the Burgesses keeping Dream locked in the basement for no reason. It's disgusting and exploitative behavior, and while it's entangled with fantasy, it's also just to the left of reality, right? There are people like that, and you may know some of them, mm-hmm. right? But to be reminded of how awful people can be next to literal, literal magic is, in my opinion, a really frightening thing. But the show doesn't really lean on the horror of it because it does things like make John D have a somewhat better reason for manipulating everyone in the diner. They should have hired Kay Applegate to write that. Because <laughs> I think, you know, what's his name is a perfect example in the horror of it when yeah. he just stays a rat. <laughs> yeah, it's true, David. Yeah, David, that's his name. Um, or giving Jed one somewhat sympathetic foster parent, right? It really only excelled for me in the Calliope adaptation where Arthur Darville is so whiny, irritating, and yet charming to others that I feel he was he perfectly he captured perfect. the character and how despicable he was. Literally, I started that that part and I was like, not Rory. <laughs> but that's not Rory. I feel like that's so expert because it Rory is. in the like Rory in Doctor Who has the appearance and like the the show seems to believe that he's this like adorable, charming man, and then you think about his actions and you're like hey Rory sucks oh god it was such perfect ca- like it was some of the best casting in the entire show absolutely it was so good like my in a show with great casting yeah yeah it just the visceral like oh cringe and upsetting I'm like this is gonna be even harder to yeah. watch of just knowing what happened I lost my oh, shit it was so good and he's attractive and mm-hmm. just like ugh yeah, it was great. The, those last two episodes were what, I mean, they just did it. Yeah. They they went for it and they did it. Um, this is another quote from the same video essay, Netflix is the Sandman horror fantasy without fear backlights of horror. All of creation is just kind of swirling in the soup of cosmic power and contradiction. As colorful as the art is, darkness is never far away. The panels are packed with grotesque life, much of it malevolent. The almost claustrophobic density of the early comics is swapped out in the show for a spaciousness that I think they want to feel epic, but all too often just feels empty. A lot of the scenes are shot in these one shots that often have a lot of negative space around the actors because the aspect ratio is so wide. It's hard for things to feel threatening with a visual language like this. And we're it cuts off the actors from their environments, limits their body language, and makes it hard to get into a rhythm with a scene partner who may not even be behind the camera. The comics are hard to read. <sighs> right? But I ended up not being able to, well, I probably could have if I tried hard to listen to the audiobook because mm-hmm. um, it was it was many sensory overloads. Again, not an audiobook. <laughs> yes, yes, It's yeah. an audio production. Yes, and it, yeah, it definitely is. And it was too much sensory overload. Yeah. Uh, so I was forced to read the comic and, um, it was hard, guys. Yeah. It's not easy. But once you get on the rhythm, yeah. on some of the stories, some of them were still hard. But some of the, like, the Rose's story, I was like, I got this rhythm yeah. good. The the comics are hard to read. We talked a bit about comic art in our episode on Hellblazers, so I will try not to retread the same ground here. But the art style and colors used in the 80s can be difficult to parse by modern comic standards if you're not already used to them. And Sandman in particular is really chaotic. It's about dreams 
per one. And sometimes the comic doesn't make a whole lot of visual sense because it is using the magic of dreams to tell the story, right? There are parts of the comic that if you tried to explain what was happening in them, it's nonsense because mm-hmm. dreams are nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, the stories and the scenes in hell are very visually noisy. And there's a lot of detail that you don't always necessarily parse at first glance. Sometimes you really have to work at it. I think this is why when I... Look at the idea of the vortex in the show. It feels very much more like, what? Okay, just roll with it. Whereas I understood it more in the comic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he explains it a little bit more in the comic, but also like having the visuals of it, if if you get the impending sense of doom. Breaking apart panels. Yes. So I think that just... The fourth wall breaking there helps you understand that she is also breaking a kind of fourth wall. Yes. I thought that it was just, it was one of those things that it, it... you got that sense of like anxiety in the in the comic much better than you did yeah. in the show where I was like, I, I understand what the vortex is, but I'm kind of just like, why can't you just figure it out? Marcus? Yes. Like, just figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't feel that way in the comic. Yeah. So the chaos of the of the comic panels like can be difficult to read, um, but it is purposeful most of the time Mm -hmm. it's doing something and that is significantly less true of the show the show does away with many of the comics bold colors even the recolored edition that i have which is okay at best um and most of the chaos uh it does away with that as well preferring to have characters in mostly isolated shots with muted colors nothing is more emblematic of this to me than the scenes in dreams throne room which is just blue and foggy yeah and it cuts back and forth between dream and whoever he's talking to rather than showing them together or having them move around or anything really it really feels like they tried to you know just capture the image in the uh from the comic without any attempt to like capture the feel of it Hmm. um but what's really missing for me in all this is the fear many panels in sandman are jarring because of their colors or or darkness or, or because they are dark, because they are literally dark, like something mm-hmm. dark is happening in the panel. The show doesn't quite manage to translate that for me. Things might look strange, such as the interior of Desire's moma- domain, but everything looks too polished and screenshotable. I'm wondering, like, uh, my first thought is like, oh, they're trying to make it more palatable, but, but Stranger Things is creepy. And like Pretty Little Liars, I know that's like a completely different thing, but that's still like I was scared. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious on why they took that. Like, obviously, like that stuff can be really popular. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if it would would have been even more popular if they had let that come in. I think that Sandman is many times repulsive. It's not something you want to see. I think that it's horror in a very different way than Stranger Things is horror. There's a reason that Stranger Things has mass appeal outside of horror fans. And it's yes, it can be creepy and it can be gross. I would describe it as horror. Yeah, but I'm wondering why they didn't pull that. You know, they made a bunch of changes for the show. Why didn't they at least pull that that kind of scare? Because it would have it. had to actually be horror and not just have mm, horror aesthetics. I see. I see. Um, That's true. It, the it, it wouldn't have any. It wouldn't have any backup. Yeah. Contextually, contextually, the characters. Yeah. Um. So everything, like you know, something might look strange on the screen, but it's meant. It's it's screenshotable, right? Mm-hmm. You can tell, in my opinion, that this is a show made for the social media era. It's meant to be gift and shared. And my pr- background on my phone. Yeah. And the pretty but empty visuals, I think, make that easier than, say, passing around a single panel of the comic, which looks both dated and messy in isolation, and to a person who isn't immersed in the in the world of the co- of comics. The show, in my opinion, sacrifices the grit and fear that make the comics so good for something that is more easily consumable. 
I say more deliberately because while I feel like the show is trying to fit within the space of prestige TV, it's not as easy to digest as some other shows in that space. Right? It's, it's not, not Stranger Things. No, it's not. Um, I don't. It's not Pretty Little Liars. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that it's a total betrayal. I don't think it's trash. I just think that it has had the rough edges sanded off in favor of digestibility. Well, the guy that I work with who absolutely loves Sandman, he's he he was really frustrated with everybody being upset, and he's like, "People need to understand that things can change, and it's okay." Yeah. Um. Another quote from that video: Netflix is the Sandman horror fantasy without fear by accolades of horror. The Sandman is in a very direct way about the depths of the human subconsciousness. Dreams are where our fears and repression take shape and run wild. And most issues of the Sandman are fantasy stories with horror stuff in them. But 24-7 is based on an issue that is a horror story through and through. And as such, the episode is forced to portray those fears in an increasingly homogenized TV and movie landscape where it feels like every big budget blockbuster has the emotional range of a mediocre sitcom. <laughs> this, this episode stands as a testament to the importance of horror. Horror demands blood and pain. It confronts us with the parts of the human experience that we'd rather pretend just didn't exist. It wants to surprise and provoke more than it wants to appease. In a way, horror tells the truth. That's what this episode does. That's what the comics do. But all too often, the show settles for telling us what it thinks we want to hear. I think that the 24-7 episode for me was really good, but just felt like it was outside of the show. If I had never read the comic, I would have liked 24-7. Yeah. I was so excited to see the episode, especially because my husband loves horror and he has not read Sandman. I was so excited for him to see this episode and he liked it. But I was like, you don't even know what you're missing. You don't even know. <laughs> it's so this gross. This was nothing. It's so disgusting. In the yeah. comic. I mean, it's disgusting on screen too, right? But not to the same, not to this. It's, 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 it's gross. Yeah. I was like, it's... It wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. It just, I was like, this is not the same. It just felt, it, for me, it just was like, this is really good, but I feel like I'm not watching Sandman anymore. I was fine with that because you don't need no, that's to. That's okay. It just felt weird. I mean, the whole point of the whole point of a lot of these stories is that Morpheus is a side character. Yes. Them. So that's why, and like talking about story, when I'm reading the outline thing, like, oh, this is a, it's about stories, it works like when I think like, I remember watching them and be like, I feel like I'm not watching anymore. But when I think about like, this isn't necessarily the story of Sandman, mm -hmm. it makes more sense. Yeah. Um, this idea that the show settles for telling us what it thinks we want to hear is precisely my issue. Yeah. The comic is horror fantasy. The show is fantasy. That's not a flaw in itself, but it means that the adaptation never quite works for me in the way that I hoped it would. It is bringing people some degree of comfort, assurances that even godlike beings can change and become good, or that even the worst person has good intentions, etc., I like the horror in the original comic and in not adapting that part of it, I feel the show really loses something that appeals to me. Um, but that's really putting me at the center of this, like me, Melissa, at the center of this, right? Me, me, me. The show is successful and a lot of people are enjoying it. I don't know that it's actually a bad adaptation. It's just one that isn't working for me because the horror, the moral ambiguity, and the grit and of the art and story are what make it compelling to me, warts and all. Sometimes the art in, in Sandman is fucking ugly. Yeah. Sometimes the colors are garish and unbearable but i like that about them i think as somebody so uh reading sandman i liked it i think it's more interesting to talk about it mm -hmm. right it's hard it's hard to read and if you know and some parts were better than others for me and i felt the same way about the show and so that makes me like but i feel there was at least more substance in the comic so mm -hmm. that makes me feel like the show even if i didn't read the comic is just okay yeah um it didn't it, it it didn't have that substance so 
I so I didn't like come out of reading Sam and be like, oh my god, I fucking love that. But I was like, that was solid. Yeah. And I watched the show and I was like, that's okay. So it makes me feel like even if you're not watching the show, a lot of people are gonna be like, that was fine. Yeah. I mean, if it's your first exposure to this kind of like metatextual storytelling, mm-hmm. the ideas of like heavily influenced by the collective unconscious and that kind of stuff, if it's your first exposure to that, it's probably going to like kick your ass, you know, yeah. you're going to be really jazzed about it. Um, if it's not your first exposure, then I think it's just kind of kind of be OK. Yeah. Um, we made Morpheus hot. So, yeah, without those things, the grit, the moral ambiguity, the horror the show isn't bad per se, but it's not the Sandman that I care about. Still, it's a way to share a story I love with people who aren't interested in reading comics. So I'm not going to say it's trash or it should be thrown in the bin or whatever. Mm-mm. It's just not what I'm looking for from an adaptation, which is fine, I guess. I think my biggest complaint is that they made um, Morpheus so likable. Yeah. I, I'm just, I think, I'm team shitty baby. Yeah. I I like how, like... Something I I appreciate about in the comic is how Morpheus seems like this big bad, right? But when you get down to it, he's just a whiny baby who's like... And Death calls that out. Yeah. And who's like, I'm not lonely. And that's the only time I feel like... So so something that's interesting. The only time I feel like we get that in the show is that story, right? Of like the whiny baby. And then in the comic, obviously we get that, but I feel like he he like it happens too too easy. Like, well, I'm your friend, mm-hmm. right? Because he's so shitty with the rest of it. Whereas in the show, it it still worked for me. But I want more of that shitty baby. Yeah, I like shitty baby. I don't need Morpheus to be someone I can root for. Yeah, I really don't. I'm okay with him sucking, and I in fact I want him to. Yeah, you do. Um, gross. <laughs> <laughs> but the show just. I think it wants us to root for him and I don't want to root for him. So one of the things that I saw, so I've been watching, this is not about Salmon. I've been watching um, the new, the Game of Thrones spinoff, the dragon, whatever. House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon. And everyone's shitty. And I saw, I didn't read, I didn't read it. So I will say that. But I saw a headline that was, it's, um, it's difficult to root for anyone when everybody sucks. Yep. And I'm just like, I should go read it because I'm like, is that a criticism? Because I, I don't think so. I think it makes things way more interesting. Yeah, like I'm literally like having a hard time being like, oh, I like, oh, that was bad. Oh, that was bad. I really like the show, by the way. I highly suggest it if you liked the beginnings of Game of Thrones. But I like that idea of like you need to root for somebody is something I felt, you know, when I was younger, right? But then as I consume more stories i think it's fun to like yeah i mean i obviously i love a villain so like that's that's we, that's me we can root for rose walker we can root yeah. for jed um we can root for the people in the diner yeah there, there's plenty of people to root for in sandman but this idea of like the the lead has to be um likable and we have to root for them um is fine yeah, like, I don't... I'll do it. I think that's just what it get. Like, a lot of times the protagonist of a horror story is not particularly likable or they are likable, but in a way that makes you fear for them. Morpheus literally has nothing to fear. He has so much power. So let him be unlikable, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. we can't be afraid for Morpheus. He's got everything under control, to the, you know, for the most part. But, um... That gives us freedom to not like him, you know, Mm -hmm. but to be captivated by him. Somebody can be interesting and compelling without being likable. This is my favorite type of character, right? Yeah, I think I think the fear of making him unlikable was probably something that 
I don't think Neil Gaiman had, but yeah. I wonder if production had. Yeah. Because um, I don't think Neil Gaiman would be afraid of that, right? No. I mean, he wrote the comic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he'd be afraid of that. But I do think that maybe when you have a... Especially since um, Netflix current... Like, the current state of Netflix and the and the mistakes that they have made and the, where they put the money, um, they are probably a little afraid on new things, right? And mm-hmm. so you don't want to create something where no one likes anyone, or yeah. so they think. So I have a feeling that had a lot to do with the production. Just, like, the, the casting... Of Morpheus is so intentional. Yeah. Um, and the casting of everybody else, like looking at least human in some cases, right? right? So I think that it's one of those things where production and, and the, the people above just needed to like go sit in a closet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't think it's a bad adaptation. It's certainly not the comic. I'm always going to have a bit of bias because I like the richness of the comic. I read the comic first. I love the comic. Like, yeah. I I truly do. I love Sandman. It's one of my favorite pieces of art. Yeah. Like, and that makes sense reading it. I thought it was good. It's really good. I love talking about it. Yeah. I think it has so much to say, but it is really difficult for me to read. I and- think I think there are some arcs later that you'll like. I know yeah. a game of you is really hard to read, but I think you'll really like it. Yeah, I'm going to have to be like in the room with you. I think you'll like season. You'll love season of this. Um, I um, loved Rose's story. I love the serial, the serial killer yeah. story. Um, I think you'll like, like the kind of story. Yeah. There's a lot of story, individual stories that I think you'll yeah. like. And then I think once you finish it, you'll be grateful to have read it yes. and see the arc of it. But it's not something that I would be like, you're going to love every bit of this. There was a, like, I was like PMSing at one point and I was reading it. I'm like, I have to put it down because the, how difficult it is to read is pissing me off. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I can't, like, I have to be in a good mood because it was legitimately pissing me off. Yeah. It's it's not for everybody. Uh, I think it's incredible. I think it's a masterpiece, to be honest. But it's one of those things where it's like, it's not going to hit the same for everybody. And that's okay. I'm glad the show exists, even if the show didn't do it for me. Because like, there's no way in hell I'm going to get my husband to read this. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot of it that he would like. I just wish they leaned more on the horror because then he would like it even more. Well, I wonder if, you know, if it does get if it does get picked back up and it did have a good reception, if they'll allow more of that. I hope so. Because, yeah, I, I agree. I just Shaking my fist at David S. Glare. If we can make Pretty Little Liars scary and spooky, we can make <laughs> Sandman. I mean, Netflix has got, like, I haven't watched them, but, like, Midnight Mass. Oh, I started that. I need to finish it. It was super good. Midnight Mass and the I other I think, ones. though, because those, so those aren't, those are big productions, right? But they're not big productions like Sandman. Right. They're not going to Comic-Con and, and investing all this money. Mm-hmm. They're targeting people they know it'll like. Yeah. Whereas they're targeting a much, much broader um, audience. And so I think that's where that fear comes in. It's and okay for things to be me. I honestly also think that maybe... Also, fuck, it's 2022. Marvel movies rule the landscape. Like I think it might have benefited it to have less of a budget. Yeah, I think it might have benefited from having less of a budget. budget. You know, it would get that weird kind of creepy look to it because mm. they wouldn't be able to do this big CGI. Or if the whole thing had been animated. Ultimately, I think that would have been, and I think they would have been given a lot more leeway in <sighs> the ability to tell a story. For like, you see this in like for me, it, for me, like Clone Wars and Avatar and things like that. You're just given this way more ability to tell a story. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think animation would have been the perfect form for it. Um, 
claymation would have been perfect form, but we would have gotten it in 1700 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> but sure. claymation would have been ultimate. That would have slapped. It would have been like Mad God taking 20 years to make. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else to say about Sandman? No, I, 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 I think that both, I think the show was okay. The comic was good. Um, but man, I sure do love the conversations. I, yeah. I don't want to compare these two things as if they are on the same level of good, but it's like Twilight where <laughs> like <laughs> the conversation being had is what like fulfills me in the like, like what I like about this. Yeah. Because like you said before, like it's so rich. There's so much to pull and there's so much history. You should, this whole outline is like 30 pages long. Like, oh, I know. I saw some I saw some more of it. I was scrolling through it. I had to cut so much. Yeah. I just think it's really interesting. And I think because Neil Gaiman is such a good writer, we get that. Yeah. I mean, he he really like he I know he's super popular and all this stuff. And I think that he's one of those people where like he he is really good at what he does. Yeah. <laughs> so not everything is perfect, obviously, but he can tell a story. Yeah. The, the guy knows how to tell a fucking story. <laughs> Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at Fakey Girls Cast, which has all of our previous episodes. If you're listening to this one and you haven't listened to our Hellblazer episode, I really recommend that one, at least the first part of it, simply because uh, it talks a lot about the art, uh, the art that was prevalent at the time and like how to parse it. And I think that that can yeah. really inform this discussion of Sandman and also the the um, climate of comics at the time. I'm glad we did Hellblazer first. Yeah. I think that really helped me as well. Yeah. Um, big thank you to Emily June um, for helping out with transcriptions. Uh, you can find transcriptions now for some of our episodes. I can't remember which ones, but they're going up slowly. Uh, Emily works on them. I work on them. And it's a lot of work to transcribe our podcast, you guys. It's so much. Um, if you like this, consider leaving us a review on your podcast service of choice. I don't know what it does. Maybe it helps us, but it makes me feel good. And that's <laughs> the most important thing. Next time, we're going to be talking about Practical Magic, both the movie and the book. Very excited about that. Uh, after that, we're going to be doing Daria. I'm so excited. I have feelings about... I. This is my take on Daria so far. How far are you? Almost through the first season. Okay. I do not like Daria, the character. Really? I dislike Daria <laughs> intensely. Do you like the cheerleader? She's all right. I like the cheerleader. I, uh, I have a feeling... There's a few things I plan to talk about for the Daria episode. One of the big ones being MTV and another big <laughs> one wait. another big one being uh generational differences because mm. I feel like Daria is a Gen X show mm. well yeah I told Bob we're doing it he's like are you doing Beavis and Butthead too and I was like no, no. we are not sorry <laughs> um after that we're going to be doing Russian Doll very excited for that one as well uh I love Russian Doll I'm excited to finally watch it. Yeah. Missy, this is how Missy gets me. I get her to watch things like sex education and she yeah. gets me to watch things like Russian I would have watched sex education eventually. You would have, but but like the amount I knew you would love it. Yeah. I really, the only thing I regret is not getting you to watch Euphoria, uh, first. Euphoria first yeah. because I just feel like you're going to, maybe if I just put it in your head, like don't compare them. They are different. You yeah. d- you uh, like won't do it. Yeah. Um. That's it. Cool. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>